All right. If you have a Bible, open it to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. I love the story of rebuilding the temple. I love, you know, we get a, we get a side benefit as adults, uh, even though, you know, the kids' message is, is obviously a, at an elementary level. But we have a side benefit, don't we, for uh, each week hearing part of God's story uh, in the lives of people. And eventually I'll, I'll get there myself when we go through it on Sunday mornings. But right now we're going through the Gospel of Mark. You know, what does it look like? What does it look like to look like a Christian? What does being a follower of God look like? And there's different opinions depending on who you ask. Um, I was reading a book the other day, and the author was describing his stereotypical view of what a Christian growing up when he did in Africa was like. And it was very different from the sort of stereotypical picture that my, my grandmother would have painted of what a Christian looked like. And my grandmother on my dad's side went to a very traditional stoic, quiet church, you showed up and your suit was pressed and it was so stiff on purpose so that you couldn't move because nobody should be moving around in church, right? Well, my other grandma, she liked the, uh, the more wild churches, you know? So her picture of what it looked like to be a follower of God would be very different. As a preacher, I have read books on preaching or about preachers and I have read where people said, you know, I knew that God's Spirit was really working because the preacher would go and he would grip the pulpit. And my little music stand here is not intimidating enough of a pulpit. I've been to some old churches you know, with these massive structures, but he, he would grip the pulpit and that's how you knew. And somebody else would say, oh, the preacher would get really quiet and that's how you knew it was important. Whereas some other person might say really loud and that's how you knew that God was speaking. Somebody might say you look like a follower of God by how you dress, how long or short your hair is, what kind of media you consume. Those are all, that's, that's how you know that somebody's really serious about their faith. Well, just as in our day, there are still questions about what it looks like to be a follower of God. In Jesus' day, there was questions about what being a follower of God looks like. Mark chapter 2, we pick, off, pick up where we left off last week. Verse 18 said, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guest of the bridegroom fast when he is with them? They cannot as long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. Now, John's disciples might be an easier group for us to identify. 
A few weeks back, Mark chapter 1, we met John the Baptist. He was a he was a preacher out in the wilderness. And his job was to prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. And he told people, repent, turn away from your sins, be baptized as a symbol of your repentance because the Messiah is coming. So when we read John's disciples, we go, oh, these were the guys that followed John. But it would be a fair question to say, why does he still have disciples? Because he's in prison. We know that already from the Gospel of Mark. He's in prison. And when Jesus came on the scene, John told everybody, follow that guy. And some of his followers did. Andrew went and grabbed his brother Peter. And Peter knew two other fishermen, James and John. Some of John the Baptist's disciples did leave and follow Jesus, but some remained. Not just in Jesus' day, but 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. There were still people, we read in the book of Acts about a guy named Apollos, who was a disciple of John. There were still those who only followed John's teaching and they didn't recognize Jesus. The Pharisees, though, yet in Mark's day, people would have known who they were. We have to do a little bit of research. And the Pharisees, the word Pharisee basically means to be set apart, to make distinct. And they actually started, I didn't plan this, this is just the grace of God on my life, where our kids' message started. During the Babylonian exile, where the Babylonian empire came, conquered God's people, took them into exile for 70 years, And what happened is over 70 years, some of God's people got comfortable in exile, got comfortable among the pagans and started to adopt some of their practices and their culture. And so the Pharisees said, no, we are going to set ourselves apart. We are going to make ourselves distinct as God's people. And they founded and established many of those synagogues and the rabbinical schools. And they they said, no, we're going to get back to the scripture and to the way of life that God would have for his people. Sounds like a pretty good group, to be honest. You or I might have joined the Pharisees when they first started. But what happened much farther back in history for the Pharisees, and for Jesus' time much more recent for John's disciples, was that they had made their whole emphasis on that being distinct and set apart, and then they had outward expressions that showed how distinct and set apart they were. A Christian would never do that thing, and I'm so glad that I'm so holy that I would never do that thing. You ever met anybody like that? You ever been anybody like that? See, in verse 18... Some people come to Jesus and they say, hey, these guys, they're acting very religious. They're acting very spiritual. Why aren't your followers doing the same? These guys come and call Jesus out for not acting as spiritual or holy or religious as they think they should. For not acting. If you're filling in your notes, acting. It's really easy for us to tell outward expressions, right? 
because you can see it. Somebody could say, oh, I, I went to church on Sunday. And it's an outward expression. You did something that's visible. It's something that can be measured. But you can't tell what's inside a person's heart, why they're, why they're here. There are people that come to church for the best of reasons. There are people that come to church for mixed reasons. I've known plenty. I was a youth pastor for a long time. I've known plenty of young, young guys that have come to church because there was a cute girl, right? And then they get a little older, and I've known plenty of guys that have no interest in following Jesus, but they've come to church because it makes their wife happy. And in a few cases, I've known some wives that have come to church to make their, their husband happy, but that's far less common. So these guys are calling Jesus out because they're looking for a specific outward expression. Have you ever met somebody that you just you sit with them and you talk with them and you just feel like this person knows the Lord? This person has spent time with Jesus. This person is a person of prayer. This person is deep in God's word. They have a, a depth to them. What will really mess with you is when you meet somebody that has an obvious depth of relationship with God and they don't fit any picture that you have. If your picture of somebody with a depth of relationship with God is somebody who's very expressive and charismatic and outgoing, and then you meet a Presbyterian who just loves the Lord, but they've never lifted their hands any higher than this in church their whole life, and outside of church, maybe not any higher than this, right? And then there's a Presbyterian brother, and they meet a young Pentecostal, and they're like, this is weird, but I think they love Jesus too. I'm, I'm sure of it. I don't understand anything that's going on here. I, oh. If you've ever been with somebody from a mainline church the first time they experience a Pentecostal church service, it's fantastic. They have so many questions afterwards. I, I grew up charismatic, so if you feel like I'm knocking on anybody, please don't. And my grandfather actually was a... a, a a very key lay leader in the Presbyterian Church in Seattle. So I, I, choose to, I choose to pick on the groups that I feel like I have some kinship with, okay? Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees, the outward expression that was being focused on was fasting. And fasting is a very popular thing right now. You hear a lot about intermittent fasting, and that's the way that you're going to get those holiday pounds off. You know what inter intermittent fasting just means? It's the really simple thing. You don't have a late night snack. That's intermittent fasting. After dinner, the pantry stays closed and those delicious cookies that my wife made stay there. That's, that's what that is. But how would anybody know that the Pharisees were fasting? I was really busy Friday. And so I didn't eat, not for a spiritual thing. I wasn't, oh, I was fasting, you know. I wish I could say that. Uh, but I just didn't have lunch. Nobody knew, right? I went, I picked up my kids from school. I had a meeting I had to go to. Like nobody was sitting there going, he looks like he could use a sandwich. <laughs> it's been a long time since anyone said that about me anyway. But then on top of that, like nobody could tell. I hadn't had lunch, but I was fine. I went home. We ate dinner. It was fine. How would you know that they were fasting except that they made a big deal about it? Oh, 
so hungry. Can you, can you help me out? I can't. I'm so famished. I've been fasting all week and I can't, I don't have the strength to help you fix your fence. <laughs> or maybe they go to dinner at grandma's and grandma, you know, she says, here, eat, eat, you know, have, have five. I don't know if your grandma was like that, but my grandma was like that. And he goes, oh, I can't. Thank you, but I'm fasting. And if you live in a small village like they did, it gets around. Don't offer, don't offer Steve anything. He's, he's not eating this week. They were making it known what they were doing. Now, Jesus responds, and he doesn't even get into the weeds on fasting. I think, fa- I'll say something about fasting in a minute. He doesn't even get into it. He says, if you knew what time it was, then you wouldn't be fasting either. He talks about a bridegroom, somebody getting married. It doesn't matter how devout a Pharisee you were. If it was a wedding coming up, you did not fast. If you were saying, I want to devote myself to God, I'm not going to eat anything, I'm only going to drink water, and I am going to just totally focus on prayer and reading the Word of God for the next three days, and if you say that on December 22nd, that's silly, and nobody would have done it. If you say the day before Thanksgiving, oh, I'm going to give up food for the next week, none of them would have done it. There were in the uh, Jewish calendar, the Jewish rhythm of life, days of feast, of celebration. You didn't fast on feast days. And if your son or your daughter was getting married, or if you yourself was getting married, or your best friend was getting married, you wouldn't fast on those days. You would be there with them feasting and rejoicing and celebrating. And Jesus says, the the groom has come. It's time for the celebration. And if the Pharisees and the disciples of John had recognized the moment they were in, they wouldn't have been fasting either. There are times for spiritual discipline. There are times of silence. Times I think it's appropriate. One of the things that I love, um, I love Good Friday services. Dark, minor chords, somber, There's something in my personality that gravitates towards that. But if you you had like a dark, somber, reflective kind of service on Easter Sunday, it'd be weird. If you had that kind of service on Christmas Sunday, it would be weird. We know the right times. There are times to engage in certain spiritual disciplines. There are times to say, today on my lunch break, I'm not going to eat. Instead, I'm going to pray and seek God because there is this need. There is this situation. I need to focus in and, and get in line with what God wants in this situation. There's times for that. There are spiritual disciplines that are healthy and helpful for Christians. But what happens is people then start to assume that every time is the right time. And Jesus is saying, hey, there's going to come a time when I'm not here anymore, when my followers will do these things, but I'm here right now. And then he he begins to talk about something that seems to have nothing to do with fasting, but it does. Verse 21, he says, no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. 
And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour the new wine into new wineskins. So, these two examples would have been almost universally understood by anyone in the first century world. The, the whole thing about the, the cloth, we still could understand, though. If you have an old pair of jeans and you've used them and you've worn them and then you've washed them and all that, and then they get to the point where when they come out of the washer, they are tight. You ever had that happen? And, and you're like, oh, man, I'm getting over. Man, I really do need to fast a little more, right? You know? But then about halfway through the day, the next thing you go, man, did my, did my belt break? Because they stretch out, right? Nobody else's genes do this after they get to a certain uh, usage. I'm, I'm hoping I'm not. This is one of those things that I think is common to like almost every person, but nobody ever talks about. So then you're like, wait, is it just me? Am I the weirdo? So if you have an old pair of clothing or cloth that has just lost all of its give and its flexibility, right? And then it tears because of that. If you put a brand new unshrunk piece of cloth on it and it has a lot of give and when you wash it, it's going to shrink and then it's actually going to shrink down and stretch the tear worse. And with the wineskins, they were just old leather pouches, like a, like a canteen, like you see in an old Western movie, you know, and they have these water skins or wineskins and they would, over time, you know, leather, same thing, with the heat, they would start to lose its flexibility, lose its give, shrink up. The, the stitching on the skin might start to, start to tighten up and shrink. And I, I, I don't understand the chemistry on this, but I have read that there is also sort of a chemical reaction that can happen with all of the tannins and acidity in, in wine that could cause the, the skins to burst. So anyone in those days would have said, hey, if, that, if you've got this thing, you put new wine in that thing, it's going to burst. You don't do that. You you put a new wineskin out, and that's what you use. They would have understood it. When your shoes develop a hole in them, you get new shoes. It's the same analogy. But what Jesus is getting at is this. These are two examples of trying to make the old thing work with the new. Trying to make the old thing work with the new. Have you ever... Do you know any, do you know, I want to gauge my audience here. Raise your hand if you know who William Booth is. Okay. So William Booth, if you don't know, was the founder of the Salvation Army. The guys who ring the bells at Christmas, right? Same guys. And William Booth did two things that were radical for the day. The first was that he took an active concern with the poor. And so that's why the Salvation Army to this day has an uh, emphasis on the marginalized. But he also used brass bands for his gatherings. You want to attract a crowd on a busy street in London? He'd get a brass band to come and play. Now, if you grew up in school with orchestra, you know, we have uh, Daniel plays trombone sometimes. And he played tuba once at Christmas and, and nobody... Nobody goes, oh, that's weird. But back then, brass bands were like the heavy metal music. <laughs> they were. It was the equivalent of, of him having a metal band come if you're in Sweden. Because I 
TV tells me that all they listen to in Sweden is heavy metal. And, and if you have, or you go somewhere and you bring, um, uh, you know, you're, you're down somewhere in Mexico and you bring a mariachi band out or you're, you're somewhere and you bring a rap band. That's what he's doing. He's bringing what is the current music of the time. And people said, you can't do that. Church music is a choir or it's an organ. It's these things. It's not a brass band. And now if a church had a brass band, everybody would go, well, that's pretty cool, right? Nobody cares. What William Booth was trying to do in his day the old expressions and the old methods of church weren't working in his day, so he tried something new for Jesus. The bummer to me, and I'm not, I have friends who, who got saved through the Salvation Army, so I'm not trying to blast anybody. But the bummer to me is when groups say, well, that's what William Booth did, so let's get a brass band together. I don't believe that if we took a brass band down onto the corner, you know, out at McLaughlin or went down to downtown Milwaukee, I don't believe that a brass band would be the most effective method for reaching people with the message of Jesus. Maybe. If the, I'm, I'm, I'm not, the Lord can do whatever he wants. But what I'm saying is William Booth went and did something new in his day. And then now people in our day, you'll hear them say, we've got to go back to the old thing. Jesus is saying, no, God's doing a brand new thing. And, and the disciples of John are waiting for the Messiah. He's come. The Pharisees are trying to make themselves distinct or set apart. Well, the one who can really do that, the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit, he has come. And then some time passes. We don't know how much time, but verse 23 says, on the Sabbath Jesus was going through the grain field and his disciples walked along and they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and he ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man, the son of man, which is a a title they would have used, an official title for the Messiah. He says, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is Lord even over the Sabbath. So first, people have called out Jesus' followers for not acting outwardly religious by not fasting. And now, Jesus and his followers are walking through a field on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Maybe they're coming to synagogue or they're on their way from the synagogue since they're hungry it makes sense to me because you know you get out of church and it's what's the first thing you think what's for lunch so you come out of synagogue and you're a little hungry you're walking through a grain field and what do they do it says they picked off little heads of grain and ate them now i am not a farmer my great-grandfather was he had a name that was perfect for a farmer his name was orville that's a farmer's name right but but I don't know anything about agriculture. What I am told is this, that if there are certain times in the year when the grain is developed enough that you can walk through a grain field and pick a head off. And then you go like this. And you rub off the husk. 
And what's left is this sort of sweet, gummy, glutinous sub- substance that you can eat and chew. And it has, as long as you're not, you know, celiac disease, it's, it's healthy for you. It's a snack. It's no different than if you were walking down, uh, you know, let's say it's, it's a couple hundred years ago, and you're walking down a country lane from church to wherever your house is, and it's Sunday, not Saturday, but it's still the Lord's Day, and you, know, you don't work on that. And you're walking down, and you see one of your apple trees is ripe, and you just pick one off real quick, and you say, oh, I'll eat this, uh, sit down with my lunch, and I'll have an apple. Is that work? In Exodus chapter 20, you can go read that on your own. In Exodus chapter 20, that's where the Ten Commandments are. And one of the commandments says, you will remember the Sabbath day and you will keep it holy and you will cease from your work. You will not harvest. So the question is, what did God's law actually say? God's law told his people, hey, there's a day that you are supposed to set aside and rest and not go out into your fields and harvest your fields. And Jesus' disciples, were they harvesting a field? No. They just, they just picked a little head of grain. We were out beach camping a couple summers ago, and there were all these berry bushes. And I was just, we would walk from our campsite down to the beach, and we'd pick some berries as we went, and it was tasty. I was not harvesting the berries. I plucked one off and I kept walking and tried not to get poked with a thorn. The dis- they said, why are your disciples doing what's unlawful? And Jesus looks at them and he's like, what are you talking about? They weren't violating God's law. They were violating man-made traditions. Now, is there a place to respect the traditions of a people? Yes, absolutely. When I go to Mexico... And we're going to Mexico the last week of June. If you're interested in coming with us on a trip, we're going to work with some orphanages down there. It's going to be $225. But when I go to Mexico, I try to respect their culture. I try to respect the norms of Mexican society. When I lived in England, I tried to respect the norms of their society. And I found out that the British have all kinds of dirty words that Americans say all the time. And I would say something and then somebody would look at me and I'd horrify like a sweet grandma in the church. And she'd look at me like, Adam, what are you doing? I'm sorry, I don't know what I just said, but I think it was bad. And when I lived in England, uh, the part of England I lived in, there was a lot of Muslims. And there were Christians who would go to minister to those Muslim neighborhoods. And the women would dress long skirts, long shirts. Sometimes they would maybe put, not a full hijab, but they might cover their head a little bit with a shark. The idea was, we're coming to you. I want to respect your culture. So there's a place for that. There's a place for that. But Jesus and his disciples weren't coming to them. They were there, right? They weren't violating God's laws. They were violating human tradition. So if somebody says, well, that person's been coming to church and they just don't dress well enough to come to church. On the flip side, I've also seen where people have said, why does that guy wear a three-piece suit every Sunday? They're making us look bad. Don't they know? 
It's jeans and flannel shirts, and that's all we wear. People, people can make a, a legalism out of anything. Pretty soon you're the rebellious one if you're wearing a three-piece suit. Jesus, here's what they're saying, and he gives them a history lesson. Jesus gives them a history lesson. Because he's like, you don't know what you're talking about. He, he mentions King David. And if you were, or still to this day, if you're a Jewish person, in your history, there's some people that loom pretty large. Moses, Abraham, the Maccabees. King David is up there. He's on the Jewish Mount Rushmore. And he says, do you remember when King David was on the run and he came to the tabernacle, the place of meeting, that was where the people of Israel would go to offer sacrifices before the temple was built? He said, don't you remember when he would go there in the days when Abathar was the high priest? And he went there on the run and he and his men had nothing to eat and they were starving. And there was bread, the consecrated bread that was only to be eaten by the high priest. It was something holy and set apart. But David and his men were starving and they ate the bread. And God was not mad at them. And you're worried about my guys picking a berry or pulling an apple off a tree? And I'll tell you, sometimes, and I've, I've been as guilty of this as anybody, Christians will freak out over the littlest things because we make such a big deal about our tradition or our way of doing things. And then God's wanting to work, wanting to do something new. And we're sitting there going, well, no, Lord, obviously that's not what you'd want to do. Surely, Lord, not. This church has been in this community since 1876. I'm going to let you in on a little secret. The people who started this church probably wouldn't like how we do church today. And if you're like, well, that's true, they probably wouldn't have liked how Winnie McCord's generation did church either. And if you don't know Winnie, she was with us. How old was Winnie when she died? We think. There was, that's how old she was. There was some discrepancy. There's always going to be a new way of doing something. And I might not like how my kids or my grandkids do church. But God's doing things and he's working. And Jesus gives them a history lesson. Hey, you're freaking out about this thing, but don't you remember? I grew up in a group of churches that effectively started what we would call modern worship. That um, you know, I was in class this last week, and uh, I'm in this uh, class on, on worship in the church, and the professor talked about it. That the, these songs and this style of music that is common in church today was started by a small group of churches. But you know what's funny? is I have talked to a lot of the people who were there at the beginning. And they're struggling with this right now. Bob's nodding because he knows them too. They, they came to faith in Jesus Christ as hippies, as surfers, as you know, drug addicts and drug dealers. And their f- folk rock 
their 70s soft AM gold style of worship. They loved that. And they aren't so sure about what's going on in the church today. All of us are susceptible to some sort of legalism. All of us are susceptible to some sort of, we love this tradition more than we love what God is doing. It's something all of us are susceptible to. And Jesus gives them this history lesson. And I think, by the way, Christians, it is valuable to us to know our story. It's valuable for us to know our story. The reason I know that this church has been here since 1876 is because I asked. I've tried, I've only been here two and a half years. I've been part of the denomination for two and a half years. I've tried to learn the story of our church and our conference of churches. I want to understand. But not just our church or our group of churches, but in general, when we know the story, when we know the word of God, when we know about the past, I believe we can better speak to our present. When somebody who's lived through something already sees everybody freaking out about something and they say, you know what, we've seen this before. We know, we know where this is going. We can be a calming influence. We can be a prophetic influence. We can be a encouraging influence. And I think there is something valuable. Now, I like history. Does that mean that you just have to spend all your time reading books on history? No. But I like history. But all of us can know at least the biblical past. I think there's something very informative to Christians in our day about knowing the story of Daniel, Christian, uh, the people of God in exile. There's something very informative for Christians in our day, knowing the story of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of the temple like the kids have been hearing about. There's something very informative about knowing our past because we see you know, what goes around comes around. There's nothing new under the sun. We see these things creeping up in our day. And Jesus speaks to them. And then at the end, he gives a one, a, well, it's a two sentence. He gives a two sentence sermon. Christmas Sunday, right? I joke that I preached the shortest sermon of the year. Abby Hill timed me, which I appreciated. I thought it was hilarious. I think it was 13 minutes and 48 seconds, something like that. Well, he ain't doing that today. <laughs> Jesus preached a two-sentence sermon. Verse 27, And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Point one of Jesus' two-sentence sermon. Point one, the law serves us. We don't serve tradition. The Sabbath, the idea of taking a day of rest, is a blessing. If you remember reading about the Industrial Revolution, the coal miners, the people working in horrific conditions in factories, but because of the Christian influence on Western culture, even the most greedy, capitalist, robber baron, factory owner, had to give his people a day off. Don't think that if the concept of a Sabbath didn't exist in Western culture at that time, that they wouldn't have tried to work them seven days a week. The Sabbath blessed 
those people. In our 24-7, nonstop, go, 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 go culture, I believe the concept of rest can be a blessing for us. I do. Angie and I, we, we, the last year, we have tried very seriously to have a day of rest, even if it's only half a day, even if it's only Friday from 2 p.m. Till, till whenever we go to sleep. But we try to have time where we are not working, where we are resting. And I've found that if we take it a little easier one day, we're able to work harder the other six days. But that's a blessing. But when we start to serve tradition, when we start to take something that's meant for blessing and then put it as a heavy burden on somebody. I have a friend named Kenny. And Kenny has short, clean-cut hair. And I can't prove it, but I'm convinced the reason he does is because when he was wasting away on drugs and alcohol, his hair was long and in a braid and this whole, like he looked like he was in a biker gang. So for him, uh, part of his outward profession of faith is that he keeps his hair very clean cut. That's a blessing for him that he has been delivered from sin. But then if, if he were to start putting that on other people, Adam, your hair's getting a little long there. You know, do you... You should uh, get down to your barber, right? Like if he, started to, if he started to put that on other people, that would be illegalism. All of a sudden, something that was a blessing becomes a burden. That's Jesus' point one. His point two is that Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. And what that means is that if Jesus is doing something new in our day, then he is Lord over our traditions. And if our traditions, not the word of God, not the Bible, but if our traditions get in the way of what God is doing, then we lose the traditions. On the flip side, Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath. So if Jesus is Lord of rest, I want in on that rest. If Jesus is Lord of the good news, I want in on the preaching of the good news. If Jesus is Lord of Christian giving, then I want in on giving generously in charity. If, if Jesus is Lord of Christian community, then I want in on Christian community. Is the church messed up? Yeah. But is Jesus the Lord of the church? I want in on it. We've got to stand firm in the fresh work that God is doing. And I don't know what that means for you. Maybe there's somebody in your life who is wanting to put a heavy burden on somebody, to put a burden of law or legalism down, and you can say, you know what? We need to show them love, not law. We need to stand firm for the new work that God is doing. Part of how we can do that is by studying so that we can better speak to our present. And finally, we can model the superiority of the grace of God. As the band comes up, we can model what it looks like to be a church that still believes all of the truth of God's word and yet is so loving that people don't go, oh, not those guys. We can model what it looks like to be a church that, that honors the past and still says, hey, we're wanting to go where God's leading us in the future. Because there are going to be people that are going to come in and want to put a heavy burden on everyone in this room and we can stand firm against them. And even better, to model the grace of God. As we do every Sunday, we respond to what God has been speaking. We respond in a few different ways. We respond through prayer. And if you need prayer, 
You can grab somebody next to you. Can you pray for me? If you just need to quietly, and I'm not going to sing a single song, I'm just going to pray, then pray. We do respond through singing. This is a way that everybody can worship God together. And we're going to sing a few songs. And if God's been speaking to you, maybe you can pour your response out in these songs. We respond through giving, and there's going to be an offering taken. If you're visiting, we're not here to squeeze you for your money. You can let it pass. But this is a way that for those of us, this is our church, we can support what God is doing. We can support outreaches like the snow retreat. We can support uh, outreaches like this summer when we do the carnival. That's a big expense, and a lot of that comes from the cumulative giving over the whole year. And also we can worship God through our giving. And however God is leading us to respond this morning, we want to make a space for us to do so. Let's worship the Lord Jesus together.